It is so good to see you guys. We had the, um, the, the I call it the pregame. It's not the pregame. The volunteers, <laughs> the volunteers who get here early, we, we have a prayer together before the doors are really getting open and everything. And Pastor Joe was, was talking to us and he was like hyping us up. And he's like, he said that it's been a whole month this week. And I don't know about you guys. I mean, I hope some of you are coming in and it was a month of blessing and favor of the Lord, like Pastor Joe's sermon last week. Some of us are coming in, and it has been a whole month of a month, and whew, it's, it's a lot. So I'm going to pray over us really, really quick before we jump into this sermon, if that's okay with you guys. God, I just thank you that we get to come and put everything down this morning. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for the reminder that you are big. You are a holy creator, almighty God who sees the beginning and the end of all time. That you are eternal and that everything that is happening is so momentary and yet you are with us in every second of it. So would you just help us to relax, to take a deep breath? Would you let us feel the strength and the the love of your presence this morning? Would you let no word come out of my mouth that isn't from you? And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you guys were here last week. Hopefully you got to listen to the message. But I was told Pastor Joe was going to be preaching on giving. And then we got here and it was like a go fight win sermon. And I felt like he stepped on my sermon a little bit that I had prepared. And actually, it's more like this is like a part two so last week we talked about the Hooper Nikeo and the Parisos, and he was bringing all the Greek, and I'm here to bring you a new word to add to your biblical lexicon vocabulary, however those words work, and this is a Hebrew word. So if you're taking notes and you like to write this stuff down, I'm going to say this very carefully, but I'm going to teach you the word anava. And we'll show that later. Okay, but I found the word in, in several places in the Bible, but I'm going to pull us to 2 Samuel 22. So if you have your paper Bible and you want to open that up, we're going to need 2 Samuel 22 for a hot second before I take us somewhere else. But we're going to be right there from verses 31 to 36. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's word is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. So this passage, I actually found, it's in the Bible two times. You have it in 2 Samuel, and then you have it again, and it's actually Psalm 18. And before, at the beginning, like sometimes it tells you why something was written. And this one says that David wrote this after he had defeated all his enemies and Saul. I don't know why, like, it says, and Saul. Maybe it's because he loved Saul, and Saul wasn't, like, always his enemy, but he had to be saved from him. So this is what he wrote. And that very last line that says, your help has made me great, 
That word in some translations, they say your gentleness has made me great, but the actual Hebrew word is anava, which is up there. So anava means humility. It's a form of the word anav, so sometimes they say anav and sometimes they say anava, but it actually means humility. And I don't know about you, but humility is like not the word that I really want to talk about. I'm not a fan of humility, probably because it makes me think of humiliation. And I'm one of those people who, when I'm lying to, in bed asleep, it is not hard for me to remember, like, you know, when you're just about to go to sleep and there's that chatterbox in your voice that's like, hey, remember in the sixth grade when you embarrassed yourself in front of the entire town? If that's, if, you know, if you don't have those moments, congratulations on being awesome and cool all the time. But that is not my story. I, so just for fun, so you can be humiliated with me. One of the things that always is popping up from time to time in my head is one of the last experiences I had playing basketball in school. Now, you might look at me and think, athlete, right? Like, probably awesome. Not the case. I hate to break it to you. Not a natural athlete. But I grew up in a very, very small town and it was basically like, be awesome at sports or do nothing. So I tried really, really hard. And I was a sub. I was in sixth grade. I was like, not the best. I just want to say, like, I almost earned a starting spot. But right when my time was coming, my pastor father decided to take our family away for six weeks to a different state on a sabbatical. And I, like, lost all the ground. And so my future was dashed because I was taken to Ohio. My friends would try to send me pages of plays, and that didn't mean anything. And by the time I came back, like, I'd lost my spot. But I was still on the team. So my grandmother had come into town. A lot of the town is there. We're at the end of this game, so they're letting the subs come in. I look up, and I see, like, all of the boys waiting for their turn to play basketball, some of whom I might have had a crush on and my mom, and my dad, and everybody's there to watch, and I'm in, and I'm ready to, like, check the ball in, okay? Everybody else is at the other end of the court. I have the ball out of bounds. Time to throw it to the girl in front of me. But for some reason, I was convinced that I had seen a really cool high schooler dribble a ball into bounds, and that I could do that and look really, really awesome and, like, professional in front of everybody. Now, some of you know basketball, no, that's not the case. You cannot dribble the ball into bounce, right? Plus, there's a girl standing in front of me waiting to get the ball. Like, it's her job to help me do this, right? No, I'm sure this is going to be my moment to look really cool. So I dribble in bounce. Ref, no, can't do that, sis. Get back out. Everybody kind of like, ha ha, poor kid. Get back out of bounce. I double down. I know I can do this, and that was an accident on the ref's part, okay? I dribble it in again. Bring me back. The girl in here is going, get me the ball. I look up. My grandmother is crying. She's laughing so hard, and so is every boy I have a crush on because I'm acting like an idiot. I don't even look at the coach. I'm pretty sure his, his, he had a bald head, and it would go like beet red when he was mad, and I just didn't even want to know. 
So I just toss it into her, and then the worst thing happens, right? The whole place applauds. So embarrassing. You try to run down the court when everybody's applauding because you finally gave up and threw the ball inbounds like a normal person. But that's why I don't like the word humility. But I mean, that is like exactly the, the, the definition of ego and arrogance. Like, I know I'm going to be awesome and I know I'm right. The ref is wrong and I'm going to prove it. And it burned. It crashed and burned so, so hard. And that's why I don't, I don't love it. I think it's because when I think of humility, I think of letting people run all over me or being utterly forever embarrassed. And that isn't it at all. That is a little like our American definition of, of humility, which is a modest or a low view of one's importance. That's what our cultural definition of, of it is. But the Jewish definition of this anava actually means to occupy our God-given space. A Jewish definition that I found describes Anna as not self-deprecation, but actually self-restraint or a lack of arrogance. Not a low view, but a true view. Our God-given space. One rabbi said that when our anava is out of balance, we either take up too much space and we are running with arrogance, or we take up too little space and we are not going into what God has for us. So I want to talk to you today about one of my favorite heroes of the Bible who really exemplifies this like godly confidence and humility. His name is Caleb. And he is basically like Captain Awesome of the Bible. So you thought David was great because he killed Goliath and everybody thinks he's so awesome. Nobody talks about the fact that Caleb killed three giants. Like, you're welcome. He's the one who helped clear the promised land of giants and sent them to Ashdod, Gaza, and Gath, where you find Goliath of Gath. So he's, he's kind of the best ever. And the coolest thing that I loved about this was when I was looking at 2 Samuel, where David wrote this, right before that, when it's finishing up, like, David beat this king, and David beat this guy, and David beat this guy— it goes through four different giants that his men, two of them his nephews, by the way, killed. So I love when it all comes together. Like, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, which we will a little bit, giants is a fun one in the Bible. But Caleb is kind of like, imagine like a biblical Daniel Boone, okay? Like, he's in there, he's pioneering, he's helping clear the promised land, or, if, you know, my husband says that Daniel Boone was a wimp, and actually Simon Kenton is the unsung hero. And my family will remember that TJ got an autobiography of Simon Kenton that was like this big, and then made us give it to everybody for Christmas one year. Like, that was their present from us, and he was convinced they would love it. Like, he was so sure that they were going to read this textbook about a pioneer who was really awesome. But I'm sure they didn't, and that's fine. So... He is, he is a really, really cool pioneer guy. Caleb has known Joshua for a long time. So Caleb came out of Egypt with Moses, and when Moses comes to the promised land, and he's like, okay, we're going to send 12 guys in, you guys scout it out, and then let us know, and they come back, and 10 of them are like, yeah, it's really great, but we're going to die, so we should definitely not go there. And Caleb is the one who stands up and says, 
that is a terrible advice. The land is good. The Lord is pleased with us. He'll lead us. He'll give it to us. Don't rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of that land, for we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Now, I will say, it's kind of fair that these people were afraid of the giant people that they saw. Because, if you trace it back, which is really fun, to Genesis, we have what are called the Nephilim, which is actually fallen angels hooking up with women, human women, okay? So giants are not just huge shack-sized people. They're huge part demon people. And they have, of course they have giant cities because they're huge giant things. And if you went somewhere and saw like the descendants of fallen angels, you probably would also be really scared. But Caleb and Joshua have a really, really strong faith and stand up in front of the whole nation of Israel, and they're like, no, we can do it. Do it for the Lord. He's with us. And everybody starts saying, we should kill Caleb, which I did not realize. But they almost stone Caleb before God intervenes and starts talking to them. And he says, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. So everybody who was too scared to obey the Lord, God punishes them by saying, you're not going to inherit that promised land, but Caleb and Joshua do. Which brings us to Joshua 14. And this is where I want to look at what we can learn from Caleb. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal. They have spent 40 years in the desert, and now they have been taking land, but Joshua is starting to be at the end of his life. People of Judah, which are Caleb's people, approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions, but my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites, which are giants. Then the land had rest from war. 85 years old. This is like if Keanu Reeves was mixed with Sylvester Stallone is kind of what I'm picturing. Like he doesn't age and he's super buff. He's got to be. 
because he fights all the time and wins. And he is neither arrogant, but he's not fearful. He has patiently waited. He knows what God promised him. And now it is time to go back. He's not shrinking back from the promises of God just because they've had some defeats of the enemy. And they have had defeats. There have been times where they have gone into battle and been totally crushed and then come back and God's been like, well, somebody screwed up and they have to deal with it. And then they go back out again. It hasn't been like perfect obedience ever since they didn't go into the promised land. But he has not changed. He is still following the Lord God Almighty. And I think that humility that he has is so against the humility that we hear as Americans where we think we're just supposed to like shrink ourselves down. Instead, it's, it's almost interchangeable with the word confidence. God has not called us to be a people of fear. Are there big, scary things in front of us? Yes, ma'am, there are. But we are still to stand tall because we know who we stand with. And I think there's some things that we can really pick up. If you want to, we're going to have a few points that you might want to write down. Number one, what does it mean for us to be Anava? Anava recognizes who God is and who I am. It is not elevating myself, and it is not putting myself down. It is recognizing who God is and who he says I am. When Caleb makes his speech to the Israelites at 40, and then he makes another one at the age of 85, he says the same thing both times. When he's 40, he says, with the Lord's help, we can do this. And when he's 85, he says, the Lord helping me, I will take this land. Because he knows full well that he's just a man. But he also knows that he is a servant of God following the God who can do this. And it's the man facing these giants recognizes too that these giants have now had an extra 45 years to settle in. So now it's even bigger and badder than it was the first time around. And he has no less faith that God can do this. Not that he can do it by himself or that his team and his tribe can do it by themselves, but that God can and will do what he promised he will do. Humility isn't thinking more because we know from 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God chose the weak things of the world. And that's us. That we are the weak things of the world. But humility also knows that we are children of a God that we can't possibly fathom. Who has created the entire universe and sees all and knows all. And there's such a such a tension between embracing Jesus and who loves us and is our friend and God who is our father that we can run and call him Abba, but also that we need to get on our face that Jeremiah and Isaiah, when God met them, they immediately fell down and said, I'm unworthy and I'm impure and I am unclean and only you can do this. He is both of those things. And we are co-heirs with Christ, Romans 8, 17 says. Like Pastor Joe says, we are Huber Nikeo. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And if God is for us, then nothing can be against us. Nothing can condemn us. Nothing can bring our, our failures back. Nothing can take fear and bring us to our knees because God is the one in charge. Neither death nor life can separate us, not demons, not the past, not the future, not the present. We are more than conquerors. 
And humility is confidence, knowing that even when I don't feel like it, God is faithful, and I can trust him. Even if I just have a tiny little bit of that to hold on to, that is what I need. That is all I need. There's this great worship song that we sing, and it it has a phrase that says something like, if that's all he ever did for me, that's enough. If Jesus dying from the cross for me and giving me eternity is all he ever does, and he doesn't bless me and give me the, the abundant life that he promised, even if he doesn't fulfill every promise that he promised that I can count on, what he did for me is enough. And sometimes it's easy to sing those things, and sometimes we just need to absorb the praises of the people around us and be strengthened by God and the little faith that we are standing on because that is what our strength and our foundation is. It's not about our feelings, but it's about the humility and recognizing who God is and who we are, regardless of what it looks like. So number two goes with that. Anava doesn't give up. Just because we might have screwed up in the past, or maybe we tried to do the right thing the wrong way, like you had the right motivation, but it was just the wrong method or the wrong timing, we see with Caleb that God brings him back around. He gets another chance. His mercies are new every morning. Moses, you might remember, grew up in Pharaoh's house. It's like, I kind of imagine like if it was JFK adopted, if their family adopted somebody, you have like political royalty. He grew up going to the best schools with all the money, with every connection, with every opportunity. And then he grew up and he wanted to go and see how it was going with the people that he came from, right? And he goes and he sees a slave master beating two Hebrew slaves and he gets mad and he kills him. And in the book of Acts, it says Moses thought that they would see that he was trying to free and rescue the people of Israel. But actually, they're like, what are you going to do? Kill us next? And he runs away to the desert for 40 years. Moses had a lot of experience with the desert. But it was the wrong method. Definitely the wrong method. However, his heart was right. He was 100% right. God did want to use him to save the people of Israel. He was just going to do it a completely different way. And he kind of took a 40-year timeout or a 40-year like survival training course. And then he came back and God used him to free the people of Israel because God knew they were going to be obstinate and then spend another, how old was that man? And then spend another 40 years in the desert. I bet if anybody could find water in the desert. It was Moses. He had the wrong method, but he had the right motivation. Saul in the New Testament, same way. You have this guy marching from town to town, killing Christians because he's going to defend the honor of God. Oh, good job. And then Jesus sits him down and teaches him the truth. He had the right heart, wrong method, but God still used him. Caleb, it wasn't even his fault. He was robbed of his method by everybody else. But God brought him around. 
So it may be that as we come in here, it wasn't our mistake or our misstep that caused us to maybe miss an opportunity that we felt like we were supposed to have. There may be something that you thought God had you on this path, and then circumstances happened, or or people, or disaster, or calamity, or trauma happened, and it made you go a completely different way, and you might feel like you missed out on this God-given calling, or this God-given opportunity. And I feel like we're supposed to see today in Caleb that God is no respecter of time. It is nothing for him to let us take some time to grow, and then he can bring us back to whatever his will for us is. We have not missed anything. If you feel like you, you missed the boat and God had something awesome and you just screwed up, God is not somebody who wants to, to just punish you and be like, well, good luck. I hope the rest of your life goes okay. He has great things for us. He has abundant life for us. And our calling may not be what it, we think it was, but he can do whatever he wants and bring us back around if other people got in the way or if we got in our own way with our method. The last thing is that Anava doesn't give in. Psalm 3.3 says, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who holds my head high. For some of us, the last three and a half years have felt like 45, or we may have walked in feeling like we are staring at giants that popped up out of nowhere. It might be circumstances, we may be looking at fear, we may be looking at things that we feel like we can't defeat, addiction and sin in our own lives. And I think, and if we ignore them and they get bigger, it's even scarier and scarier to think that it is possible that we could dig out and defeat the giants that may be in front of us. In Ephesians 6, 6 verse 16 says, In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. In the beginning of that, it says, in addition to all this, because in the verses before that, he's telling us to put on the full armor of God, the full armor of God being truth, that we are protected by truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We are not sinning. We are not hiding. We are doing our best to live for God. And feet with the readiness that comes to share the gospel of peace. In addition to all that, he says, pick up a shield of faith. And then when Psalm says, you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. Who told us that God didn't care? Who tells us that God isn't for us? that he disappeared, that he left us on our own, that our failures are our identity forever? Who told us that the bad thing that happened or the bad thing that may happen is our future and is what we are stuck with? That is not the gospel. I know we want to receive the promises of God and have there be no giants in the land, but we live in a broken world and we live in a sinful world and we are aliens 
and ambassadors for Christ. And the enemy is going to come against us because we are here to do his will. But sometimes it gets heavy to try to pick up a shield of faith. And that's when it says the Lord is a shield around us. That when we have a fallen head with shame or with grief or with fear, he is the one who lifts it up. We don't shrink back. Hebrews 10.39 says, we belong to those who have faith and are saved. And my favorite quote right now is one I heard this week that said, the strength and the salvation is not in the size of our faith, but in the object of our faith. It's okay if our faith is a little bit, because our faith is in the right thing. Just like the man who brought his son who was demon-possessed, and he asked the disciples to pray for him, and they couldn't make it happen. And then Jesus came and he said, if you believe, and the man said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Because I know I don't always have enough. The Lord is a shield around me. And it is he who lifts my head high. So this is the point, if you want to come to your feet, where we are going to have some worship and have prayer for each other and with each other. And as I wrote this, I felt like God said there are a few things for people to come forward for prayer or it's whatever you walked in with that you want prayer for. It could be anything. But if you came in and feel like you just need someone to come alongside you and give you some of their faith, one of these people to come and pray with you and help bolster your faith because it's hanging on by a thread. That's what we're here to do together. If you've come in and you see and you know what God has promised you, but you don't see how he could possibly do it because there's just too much in the way and there's too much baggage and there's just a lot, we can come and pray with each other. Pray that we get a different perspective, that God opens our eyes to see what he sees, to have the faith that he has. Or you might have come in and you feel like you missed out on the plan God has for you. You don't know where you're going or what you're supposed to do. You, you might have missed an exit off the highway of your life and you're not sure what the rest of it looks like. Let's pray together. Let's pray for wisdom. Let's pray for encouragement. Because God can bring everything back around in his time. Come up here at any time.